Well, howdy, everyone. It's such an encouraging reminder, isn't it? That our sins can be so many, so overwhelming. But we can take courage and comfort that despite our overwhelming sins, God's mercy is more. Well, today we are in 1 John, right? And uh, I wanted to start off um, just by asking the question, who are the children of the righteous God? Right? So, now there's, um, there's this video game that's popular right now. At least I think it's popular still. It was last week anyway. <laughs> um, Trends come and go so quickly. Anyway, this video game is called Among Us. Any of you youth familiar with Among Us? Yeah, I see some, yeah, yeah, okay. So for those of you who don't know, in this game, some of the players are trying to sabotage a ship and eliminate the other players, um, while the rest are trying to catch the saboteur. The problem is that everyone looks the same. You can't tell just by looking. Everyone looks the same. So the point of the game is either to blend in and not get caught, or to figure out who the saboteur is and stop them. So how can you tell who the saboteur is if everyone looks the same? You have to look at their behavior, what they're doing, right? You can tell who the saboteur is if you see them sabotaging the ship or trying to eliminate another player. You can also tell who the saboteur is if they are not helping to repair the ship. And sometimes they're especially devious and they don't let anyone see their sabotaging and they help fix a few things, but eventually their deception gets found out. So John was kind of dealing with a similar situation because sometimes it's hard to tell who are the children of God. We all look the same. We're all, we're all people. But we don't behave the same, and we don't have the same desires. Let me go ahead and pray, and then we'll read our passage in 1 John. Father, as we come to your word this morning, or this afternoon, um, I just pray that you would speak to our hearts. Don't let your word go in one ear and out the other. Lord, plant it deep inside of us. Cause us to change, to become more like your son. And Father, I pray that you would speak through me and encourage the brothers and sisters, encourage your children that they are truly yours. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, amen. All right, 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 through chapter 3, verse 10. Ryan spoke a little bit last time about where the chapter break was supposed to be, so I won't get into that. But um, verse 28 of chapter 2 says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, 
you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So we have here a shift, right? We've been talking about the metaphor of light. God is light. We have this shift now to God is righteous, right? So we have the shift of metaphor to reality because God really is righteous. And I don't think he really is light. I think that's a metaphor to show us the distinct character of God, right? But he really is righteous. We have this reality of righteousness. God is righteous and he makes his children righteous as he is righteous. So we're going to answer this question, who are the children of the righteous God? We'll also be answering the question, how can we identify who are God's children? And how can we differentiate the children of God from the children of the devil? I'll give you the Cliff Notes answer right now. God's children are those who abide in Christ, those who hope in the Father's love, and those who rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. So our first point, our first section here is just verses 28 and 29 of chapter 2, and that is uh, where we see the confidence of the children of God. As we go through this, it's my prayer that you would have confidence that you are God's child by abiding in Christ. The imperative here in verse 28 is abide in him. We've seen this imperative before. Ryan talked about it last week, right? Abide in Christ. And in verse 28, he says it again. And now, little children, abide in him, right? So what does it mean to abide in Christ? Ryan talked about it last week. He taught us that abiding in Christ means fellowship with God. He said that it's the new covenant reality in the Holy Spirit. 
To abide, the word to abide is to dwell or remain or stay, right? So it's kind of like your home, right? You make your home in Christ. Your home is a shelter from storms, right? Like the crazy storms that we had the past couple of weeks. And from heat, right? It's a shelter from heat. We're looking forward to, maybe some of us more so than others, the heat that is coming in summer. It's a refuge, right? After a hard day work, a hard day at school, you come home and it's your refuge. It's a place of comfort. If you get hurt or if you're sick, sick, you stay home, right? It's a place of sustenance. You have a dinner table there, a kitchen, you make food, you eat. You have refrigerator rights there. It's a place of rest, right? It's a place where you can sleep securely. It's a place of refreshment so you can continue work outside. So we know what abiding in Christ is, but how do we do it? Ryan taught us last week that we abide in Christ by going to the gospel. He said that we are adequately equipped to abide in Christ by means of the gospel. We take shelter in Christ by reminding each other of the gospel in the midst of the storms of life, like we sang in Christ, our sure and steady anchor. We take refuge in Christ by rehearsing the gospel when life is hard. We're comforted by Christ when we run to him for forgiveness when we sin or for the strength to forgive others when they sin against us. We find our sustenance in Christ as we feed on the gospel when the world saps our energy. We find rest in Christ because he did everything to secure our justification and eternal life so that we don't need to do anything more to that end. We're refreshed in Christ when we're reminded in the gospel of how much God paid to reconcile us to himself And that refreshment allows us to continue preaching the gospel to the world that God so loved that he gave his only son. So now that we've got what abiding in Christ is and how we do it, we got to ask the question, why? Right? Now, some of the life situations that make up the how also give us, sort of give us the why. But there's a greater reason for abiding in Christ than a situational remedy, right? John says we must abide in Christ so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Remember, John had said in chapter 2, verse 18, that it's the last hour. It's still the last hour. We're still expecting, anticipating Christ's return. We need to abide in him now so that when he returns, we'll have confidence that we belong. I remember a time in college. To be honest, this may have just been a nightmare at college. Uh, But the illustration is still applicable whether it actually happened or not. (laughs) So it's the first day of the semester So everyone has new classes. I went to my first class. 
I don't remember which class it was, but for the sake of argument, we'll say it was economics, right? There were a lot of people in the class I didn't know. I felt a little shy, like I am, right? Didn't want to look foolish, so I just sat down, didn't talk to anybody. And uh, when the professor arrived, though, I immediately felt out of place because I knew the professor who walked in was a Bible professor, not an economics professor. (laughs) I was in the wrong class, and I shrank in shame into my seat because I wasn't where I was supposed to be. I had not done what I was supposed to do. And now I looked like a fool for having shown up to the wrong class. Not only that, but I was late for the class I was supposed to be in. Now, we're going to flip that illustration around. Imagine that I was actually supposed to be in the Bible class, but some of the other students were in the wrong class, thinking that it was economics, right? And they pull out their economics textbooks and uh, start telling those of us who brought out our Bibles that we're in the wrong class. What are you doing here? This is economics. Why are you bringing out a Bible, right? How would I know that I was in the right class? I look at the class schedule, right? Look it up, fact check, right? Now, what if the Bible professor was my dad? How much more confidence would I have living in such close relationship to the professor? My confidence would not be shaken. As soon as the Bible professor came through the door, my confidence would be validated. And the other students would be the ones shrinking in shame. More so for trying to convince others that they were in the wrong class. That is what John is talking about. There were some people who were shaking the confidence of the believers. But John is assuring them and us that if we abide in Christ, we can have confidence when he appears that we belong. But those who are deceiving the believers will end up shrinking in shame because they do not belong. They were the antichrists that John was talking about earlier. And they foolishly tried to convince those believers that they were not secure in Christ. You see, shrinking in shame at Christ's coming is an indication of not belonging to God. Likewise, having confidence when he comes is an indication of belonging to him. And that confidence comes from abiding in Christ. Now, belonging to the righteous God, being born of him like having him like like having your dad as the professor, means being characterized by righteousness as he is righteous. Verse 29 says, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Righteous God begets righteous children of God. Like begets like. I mean, you can just look in Genesis to see that, right? The animals all bore after their own kind.
the test to see whether a person has been born of God is whether or not they practice righteousness. Now notice here that John didn't say that everyone who is perfect has been born of him. He didn't say that everyone who accomplishes righteousness has been born of him. He says everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Yes, but practice makes perfect, right? No, wrong. Practice does not make perfect. I've heard a few different ways people have pushed back against that statement. If practice doesn't make perfect, then what does make perfect? Perfect practice makes perfect, right? Well, that's not helpful. It's also not accurate because nobody's perfect. You can't even practice perfectly, right? If practice doesn't make perfect, then what does practice make? I've heard that practice makes progress. That's closer, but it still doesn't really land with, you know, assurance, what we're talking about. I mean, progress is better than it was before, but it doesn't really give us assurance, right? For what we're talking about, I think it makes the most sense to say that practice doesn't make perfect, practice makes confident. I can't tell you how many times I've heard recitals that sounded beautiful, and only afterwards did I find out that the person who was playing made so many mistakes. I had, I had no idea, right? Because they practiced enough that they were able to play confidently, right? Now, specifically here, present practice makes for future confidence. When we practice righteousness now, it reminds us of our identity in Christ because we cannot practice righteousness apart from abiding in Him. And that gives us confidence now and in the future so that when He appears, we are sure that we belong. Do you have confidence right now that you belong to God? If you do, then continue to abide in Christ so that your confidence would not be shaken. And when he comes, you can be sure that you belong. If you do not have confidence that you belong to God, then look to the gospel. Look to the love of the Father who gave his Son so that by his death and resurrection we may be given salvation from God's wrath, freedom from sin, and eternal life. Your confidence should not come from your own performance. You could never be, okay, let me, I'm going to slow down on this because I have a few negatives in here. You could never be so righteous that God would never kick you out of the family. It's a little hard to wrap your head around, right? If you think that you are righteous enough that God would never kick you out, you're wrong. That's what I'm saying, right? You could never be that righteous that God's like, oh, yeah, I'll never kick you out, right? Why? Because your righteousness is from him in the first place. It's not even your own righteousness, right? Likewise, you could also never sin too much that God would never let you stay in the family. This is huge. So many people get overwhelmed by their sin and they think, oh, God could never forgive me. You can never sin that much 
You can never sin so much that God would say, yeah, no, you can't stay. You're gone. Because all those sins were paid for. All of them. You can never out-sin the grace of God. But God's children still try to avoid sin, as we'll see later. We'll get into that later. So, our first point, we can have assurance that we are children of the righteous God because we have confidence by abiding in Christ. And, now our second point, we can have assurance that we are children of the righteous God because we are characterized by hopeful purity rooted in the Father's love. We'll see the character of the children of God. It's my prayer in this section that you would be characterized by pursuing hopeful purity, by dwelling on the Father's love. The imperative in this section is right out the gates. That first one in chapter 3, verse 1, see. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Let me just read verses 1 through 3 here. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called, identified as children of God. The verb that's translated has given, see what kind of love the Father has given, is a perfect tense verb. That means that it's kind of a past reality with ongoing effects, right? This kind of state of being almost, right? So it's a love that the Father gave us in the past that we have present interaction with, present effects, right? John says that our present reality is not based in our present experience. He did not say, see what kind of obedience we have shown to the Father that we should be called children of God. No. He said, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. The present reality of our identification as children of God is based on the past reality of God's love poured out for us on Calvary. God's love is the basis for our identification as his children. And then, it's as if John is just as staggered by this reality as we are. He goes on to affirm the reality. And so we are. Our identification as God's children is not in name only. It's reality. Wait, wait, wait. You mean God loved us so much that he identifies us as his children and he actually made us his children? Yeah. Yeah, believe it, because it's true. We really are God's children. Then, to solidify this truth even further, John says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Our identity is bound up with our Heavenly Father. 
not with the world. We're no longer identified with the world. Even the world can see our identity shift, and the world is confused by it because it's confused by God's love. To the world, it's foolish to love someone who hates you. And that's exactly what God does. We see in Romans 5, 6 through 10, you can turn over there if you'd like. Romans 5, 6 through 10, Paul says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. We were enemies of God. We hated him, but he loved us and he bought us with the blood of his son. And to the world, God's love is foolishness. And so the children of God appear foolish to the world as well. We rejoice in God's love and the world says we're delusional. Now, John moves on to show us that our present identification as God's children has a future aspect as well. In verse 2, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Our present reality as children of God, based on the past and ongoing love of our Heavenly Father, has a future reality as well. So we've got both past, present, and future, right? Past based on God's past love, present reality that will be in the future as well. We got all three. But that future reality is not a reality yet, but a hope. When Jesus Christ comes back, we will be like him. That's the hope. Now, how exactly will we be like him? Well, we'll be pure, as he is pure. And we pursue that purity even now. Verse 3 says, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is biblical hope. Yearning for that sure future purity in the presence of Christ, producing a present pursuit of purity, rooted in the past reality of God's pure love and proven faithfulness. 
Let me say that again for those of you taking notes. Biblical hope is yearning for that sure future purity in the presence of Christ, producing a present pursuit of purity, rooted in the past reality of God's pure love and proven faithfulness. Do you have this hopeful pursuit of purity? If you do, then continue in it, looking to the love of the Father and longing for your future purity. If you do not have this hopeful pursuit of purity, then ask yourself, why not? There may be many reasons. If you do not pursue hopeful purity because you do not know God, then look to the love of the Father in the gospel. God the Father gave his son to die on the cross so that you wouldn't have to, and then he raised him from the dead so that you could have eternal life with him forever instead of eternal punishment in hell. If you do not pursue hopeful purity because your sin seems too big to overcome, then look to the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice to save even the worst sinner. Paul said he was the chief of sinners and that God saved him as an example so that no one could say they've sinned too much for God to save them. God loves you more than you can imagine. Now, if you do not pursue hopeful purity because you presume upon God's grace, then look to the cost of your redemption and the incompatibility sin has with Christ. We'll look at that in just a moment. So we saw our first point, that we can have assurance that we are children of the righteous God because we have confidence by abiding in Christ. Our second point, we can have assurance that we are the children of the righteous God because we are characterized by hopeful purity rooted in the Father's love and now we'll see that we can have assurance that we are children of the righteous God because we contrast with sin by repenting through the power of the Holy Spirit. We see the contrast of the children of God. It's my prayer here that your life would contrast with sin by repenting of it, repenting of sin in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the imperative in this section is down in verse seven. Let me read for us again, verses four through 10 of chapter three. It says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 
So the imperative here is don't be deceived. Let no one deceive you. That, that's down in verse 7. We're going to look at verses 4 through 6 first, though, to see how sin is incompatible with Christ. It says everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So, why did the Son of God come to earth to be born as a man? There are a few different reasons. There's not just one, right? We see here in verse 5, he came so that uh, he came so that he could go to the cross and put an end to sin. We also see, if you skip down to verse 8, that he came so he could destroy sin and deceit, the works of the devil. And if we look in um, Romans 8, 1 through 4, it says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We see there that he came so that he could fulfill the law in us. You see, he fulfilled the law in us by paying the penalty for sin and sending the Holy Spirit who enables us to fulfill the law in loving God and loving others. Now, if... The reason Jesus came to the earth and died was to eradicate sin. Then those who abide in him will also put sin to death in their lives because sin and Christ are incompatible. Now, in verses 7, three, seven and 8, we get to the crux of the matter, right? John says, little children, let no one deceive you. Don't be deceived. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This was the deception being leveled at John's original audience. And it's a deception that still exists. The lie is that you can never be righteous, so you don't need to fight against sin. It's a losing battle, so why fight, right? I know I've thought that. I'm sure many of you have thought that. It's a horrendous lie that has claimed the lives of many, including some I hold very dear. The truth as John states it, is that practicing righteousness means you are righteous. And practicing sin means you are not born of God, you are born of the devil. Practicing sin 
means you are deceived by the devil. And Christ came to destroy the sins and the deception of the devil. Now I want you to notice, you can count it up if you want, how many times in verses 4 through 10, John uses the word practice or the concept of keeping on, either sinning or righteousness. It's a lot, right? Nine. I count nine times in seven verses. Nine times he uses this concept of practice or keeping on doing something, right? It's very important. It's very important to John's argument, this idea of practice, keeping on doing something. Now, the idea of practice is the key, I believe, to understanding John's argument here, and it's one of the keys to unlocking our assurance of eternal life. Have you ever heard a young child practicing the recorder? <laughs> yeah, it's usually terrible, right? <laughs> Makes you want to plug your ears, go in the other room. Ah. Now, have any of you ever heard a symphony practice right before opening night of their concert? If you haven't, it's usually beautiful. Many times that practice is better than the performance because there's not the pressure of the performance. They can just play, right? But usually there's still little kinks to work out. Now, the whole idea of practice is not perfection in practice. We saw that earlier, right? Practice doesn't make perfect. Practice is the pursuit of perfection. The pursuit of purity. See, both the kid practicing the recorder and the symphony practicing before opening night are pursuing the goal of playing their music purely. We are not considered righteous because we've attained perfection or even because we've gotten to a particular level of righteousness. We are considered righteous because we pursue it by faith, like Abraham did, right? We saw that in Galatians. Ryan talked about it earlier, right? You see, John is not talking about a few slip-ups here or there, or a good deed done once in a while, or even a habitual pattern of sin or a habitual pattern of righteousness. That's right, John isn't talking about patterns of behavior. He's talking about desires, about your view of sin and righteousness. If you desire, if you want to be righteous, then you take steps to pursue righteousness Regardless of how successful you may be in any given moment, you keep going. If you want to be rebellious, then you refuse to take steps to pursue righteousness, even when they're right in front of you. And no amount of church going or Bible reading will make you righteous because only God can make you righteous. 
And only he can make you want to be righteous through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we saw the behavior and the desires that kind of differentiate the children of God from the children of the devil, but there's a fundamental difference that's even deeper than behavior and desires. Verses nine and 10 talk about that fundamental difference. John says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the, the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. We've seen the differences in behavior and desire, but the fundamental difference between the children of God and the children of the devil is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The reason the children of the righteous God pursue righteousness is because God's Spirit abides within them. The Holy Spirit lives in us. He dwells within us. He abides in us, affecting our very desires. The children of the righteous God cannot keep on sinning because God's seed, the Holy Spirit, has changed our desires to be repulsed by sin and to love and long for righteousness. Remember, this is not saying that God's children don't sin. But when we do sin, and we will, this side of heaven, we're repentant. And we seek to kill that sin every day by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Now, the last statement of the passage links the pursuit of righteousness with the attitude and actions of love for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the, um, I don't know how, how you would actually do this righteousness, right? Is by loving the brothers and sisters in Christ. They're both the product of the indwelling Holy Spirit, and I'm sure Ryan is going to talk about this aspect in detail next week since the passage that he's dealing with is all about loving one another, right? So I won't steal any of his thunder on that, but we'll just segue right into that, loving one another. But does your life contrast with sin? Are you repulsed by your sin? If the answer is yes, then rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to kill your sin every day through prayer and fellowship with other believers. You're not gonna be able to get out of it on your own strength. It's gotta be by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the way that we access that is by prayer and fellowship with other believers. Now, if the answer to that question is no, Remember the question, does your life contrast with sin? If it doesn't, then look to the love of the Father who sent his Son to die for your sins. He wants to forgive you. He wants you to repent. Come to Christ 
and have faith that he can save you from sin and death. So our first point, we can have assurance that we are children of the righteous God because we have confidence by abiding in Christ. Our second point, we can also have assurance that we are children of the righteous God because we are characterized by hopeful purity rooted in the Father's love. And our third point, we can have assurance that we are children of the righteous God because we contrast with sin by repenting through the power of the Holy Spirit. You can have assurance of eternal life if you are a, truly a child of God. And you can know that you are a child of God because you have confidence by abiding in Christ, because you're characterized by a pursuit of hopeful purity, by dwelling in the Father's love, and because you contrast with sin, repenting of it by relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. So abide in Christ. Look to the Father's love. Rely on the Holy Spirit to avoid being deceived to know that you really are God's child, that you really have eternal life. The children of the righteous God want what he wants, righteousness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this passage. I thank you so much for the truth that combats the lie. That we can pursue righteousness. Even though we may not attain it in this life, we pursue it because we know that you love us and you want us to be righteous. We wa you want us to pursue it, to practice it. I pray that you would give us the strength to do that and when we sin, I pray that you would turn us to you to rely on your Holy Spirit dwelling in us to kill it, to kill sin. Father, I pray that you would drive us into your loving arms. I pray that we would abide in your Son, in his sacrifice on the cross for our sin as the purchase, the purchase price to win us back, that we could be called children of the righteous God, that we could be called your children. Father, I thank you that you've not only called us your children, but that you've actually made it a reality. We really are your children. You've adopted us into your family. I thank you so much for that reality. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us this assurance and that you would cause us to pursue purity, looking forward to when your son comes again, that we could actually be pure in his presence as we see him. Father, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.